We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it The Germans had crossed the Meuse on 13 May. On 14th May, Guderian had ordered the Panzers to wheel westward to the Channel. The only thing slowing their dash was the Army Group commander, Gerd von Hunstedt, and the Corps commanders. Then, of course, there was the great panic by the Führer on 16 May, waiting for the counter-attack by the French army into the flank of the Panzers, the 19... 19- 40 version of the Miracle on the Marne that had robbed the Germans of victory in 1914. But that never came. It was not ever coming. Or was it? On 21 May, 11 days after the opening of the German offensive, 8 days after the crossing of the Meuse River, and 7 days after Guderian had unleashed the Panzers against his orders, finally, the British army struck into that long-exposed panzer flank at Arras. Was this the beginning of their end? The long-awaited miracle on the Marne. After the halt order on Rommel's advance was lifted on 21 May, Rommel was let off his leash again. Now he decided that he needed to pick up the pace of his lightning advance. He had to make time, the only thing that Napoleon had said you can never get back. He ordered his 25th Panzer Regiment to push toward the Scarp River bridges at the town of Arc. That left the rest of the 7th Panzer Division without almost a single tank. Rommel led this new charge. But then he realised that his motorised infantry weren't coming up as fast as he'd like, so he turned around and went back to push them forward. This was the Rommel that you saw in World War I and would be the same Rommel that you'd see in North Africa between 1941 and 1942. When he reached his motorised infantry, he discovered that this soft part of his division was under a fairly serious attack. It turned out to be the most serious threat to Operation Sicklecut that was going to materialise in this entire campaign, and it left a lot to be desired. Sir Basil Lytle Hart, in his commentary accompanying the diary entries in the Rommel papers, wrote, This attack had been hurriedly organised by the Allied commanders in an attempt to break the net that was swiftly closing round their armies in Belgium. For the purpose, the British 5th and 50th Divisions were rushed south to Arras, together with the 1st Army Tank Brigade, infantry tanks, while the French planned to cooperate with two mechanised divisions and two infantry divisions. The attack took longer to mount than had been reckoned, and was launched before its mounting could be completed. For, on the 20th, Guderian's corps raced into Amiens in the morning and reached the sea near 
Abbeville that night, thus cutting the Allied Army's supply lines. A deadly stroke. Under pressure of the emergency, the British commander decided to start his attack without waiting any longer for the French. But as delivered, the British attack boiled down to a matter of two tank battalions, the 4th and 7th RTR, with 74 tanks in all, supported by two infantry battalions. Part of the French 3rd Light Mechanised Division, 70 tanks, cooperated on its right flank. Karl-Heinz Freiser says of the attack, Accident had it that the British tank attack mounted without any prior reconnaissance exactly at the worst moment and in the worst spot, punched full force into the unprotected flank of the German infantry columns. Rommel's first assessment of the British attack was that it was being easily handled by his men. He wrote, As we were now coming under machine gun fire, and the infantry had already taken cover to the right, Most and I ran on in front of the armoured cars towards the battery position. It did not look as though the battery would have much difficulty in dealing with the enemy tanks, for the gunners were calmly hurling round after round into them in complete disregard of the return fire. The British Matilda tanks, their Mark II infantry tanks, came into this action. They had 80mm frontal armour, and they were the most powerful tanks that fought in France in that summer of 1940. There were 16 of them. They were supported by 58 of the older Mark I tanks, heavily armoured, but only armed with machine guns. A German after-action report reflected the concern that the heavy British Matilda tanks had caused to Rommel's men, particularly his anti-tank gunners. Our own anti-tank guns do not have a sufficient effect, even at close range, against the heavy tanks of the English. The enemy simply breaks through the defensive front they form. The British tanks shoot the German anti-tank guns to pieces and crunch over them, and the crews are mostly killed in action. The Germans began to waver in their resolve in the face of these monsters. Rommel continued his narrative, typically his understanding of human psychology in the way he waged war, was shown in his account. Although the Germans were faced with tanks and armour that they couldn't penetrate, Rommel ordered rapid fire. Even though the tanks were impervious to the German anti-tank guns, the rapid fire still worked to weaken the resolve of the attacking British tank crews. Rommel said this, Running along behind the battery lines, we arrived at Valley, and then called up the vehicles. The enemy tank fire had created chaos and confusion among our troops in the village, and they were jamming up the roads and yards with their vehicles, instead of going into action with every available weapon to fight off the oncoming enemy. We tried to create order. After notifying the divisional staff of the critical situation in and around Valley, we drove off to a hill 1,000 yards to the west of the village, where we found a light AA troop and several anti-tank guns located 
in hollows and a small wood, most of them totally under cover. About 1,200 yards west of our position, the leading enemy tanks, among them one heavy, had already crossed the arras Bomets railway and shot up one of our Panzer III's. At the same time, several enemy tanks were advancing down the road from Bactunor and across the railway line towards Veli. It was an extremely tight spot, for there were also several enemy tanks very close to Veli on its northern side. The crew of a howitzer battery some distance away now left their guns, swept along by the retreating infantry. With Moss's help, I brought every available gun into action at top speed against the tanks. Every gun, both anti-tank and anti-aircraft, were ordered to open rapid fire immediately, and I personally gave each gun its target. With the enemy tanks so perilously close, only rapid fire from every gun could save the situation. We ran from gun to gun, the objections of gun commanders, that the range was still too great to engage the tanks effectively, were overruled. All I cared about was to halt the enemy tanks by heavy gunfire. Soon we succeeded in putting the leading tanks out of action. About 150 yards west of our small wood, a British captain climbed out of a heavy tank and walked unsteadily towards us with his hands up. We had killed his driver. Over by the howitzer battery also, despite a range of 1,200 to 1,500 yards, the rapid fire of our anti-tank and anti-aircraft guns succeeded in bringing the enemy to a halt and forcing some of them to turn away. Oberleutnant Most, mentioned in the account that I've just read, who was accompanying Rommel, was killed at his side. Rommel was unaware that they were even under enemy fire. Such was his concentration in dealing with the problem at hand. Rommel explained what was happening. We now directed our fire against the other group of tanks attacking from the direction of Bac du Nord and succeeded in keeping the tanks off, setting fire to some, halting others and forcing the rest to retreat. Although we were under very heavy fire from the tanks during this action, the gun crews worked magnificently. The worst seemed to be over and the attack beaten off when suddenly Most sank to the ground behind a 20mm anti-aircraft gun close to me. He was mortally wounded and blood gushed from his mouth. I had had no idea that there was any firing in our vicinity at that moment, apart from that of the 20mm gun. Now, however, the enemy suddenly started dropping heavy gunfire into our position in the wood. Poor Most was beyond help and died before he could be carried into cover beside the gun position. The death of this brave man, a magnificent soldier, touched me deeply. A few weeks later, Rommel wrote to his wife, Lou, mentioning the death of Oberleutnant Moss, saying, Schreibler is back already. His successor was killed a yard away from me. 
Holtman Schreppler was absent because he too had been wounded a few days earlier while he was at Rommel's side. You can only imagine what Rommel's wife thought about the danger her husband had been in from these casual comments he made to her in his letter. Rommel's description of the battle continued. Meanwhile, violent and costly fighting had been going on in the region of Tiloy, Borain and Agni, very powerful armoured forces had thrust out of Arras and attacked the advancing 1st Battalion of the 6th Rifle Regiment, inflicting heavy losses in men and materiel. The anti-tank guns, which we quickly deployed, showed themselves to be far too light to be effective against the heavily armoured British tanks, and the majority of them were put out of action by gunfire, together with their crews, and then overrun, by the enemy tanks. Many of our vehicles were burnt out. SS units close by also had to fall back to the south before the weight of the tank attack. The SS unit that he mentioned was the Totenkopf Death's Head. It was at this time a green unit with no combat experience. As the British Matilda tanks rolled into their formation, many of their soldiers broke and ran. Rommel continued, Finally, the divisional artillery and 88mm anti-aircraft batteries succeeded in bringing the enemy armour to a halt south of the line Borain's Agni. 28 enemy tanks were destroyed by the artillery alone, while the anti-aircraft guns accounted for one heavy and seven light. While this heavy fighting had been going on around the 6th and 7th rifle regiments, Rothenberg's 25th Panzer Regiment had reached its objective in a dashing advance, and then waited in vain for the arrival of the reconnaissance battalion and the rifle regiments. At about 1900 hours, I gave orders for the Panzer Regiment to thrust southeast in order to take the enemy armor advancing south from Arras in the flank and rear. During this operation, the Panzer Regiment clashed with a superior force, of heavy and light enemy tanks and miniguns south of Agnes. Fierce fighting flared up, tank against tank, an extremely heavy engagement in which the Panzer Regiment destroyed seven heavy tanks and six anti-tank guns and broke through the enemy position, though at a cost of three Panzer IVs, six Panzer threes, and a number of light tanks. This action brought the enemy armour into such confusion that in spite of their superior numbers, they fell back into Arras. Fighting ceased at nightfall. Meanwhile, the situation northwest of Veli had been fully restored. This dangerous situation was mastered because of Rommel's principle of leading from the front. Karl Heinz Freiser, in his book Blitzkrieg Legend, says, The principle of leading from up front proved itself in view of this situation, because German commanders practiced that principle in contrast to the Allied commanders. Nobody did it to such extremes, and often quite exaggerated, as Rommel. His favorite saying was that no admiral ever won a sea battle from the coast. This leadership principle had a twin effect at Arras, psychologically 
and in terms of command technique. First of all, Rommel's actions served as a model. He was in the thick of the fighting amid his own men, although in some cases there were nightmare-like scenes when enemy tanks rolled over German anti-tank gun positions. But there was no panic. In contrast to the SS Totenkopf division, there were no bug-out movements worth mentioning, because the division commander personally exposed himself to this danger. His men could only do likewise, and so enemy tanks broke through the German lines, but the latter held. That made it possible to beat back the British infantry that was trying to follow the British tanks. The situation into which Rommel moved was by no means without danger. As the British tanks opened fire on the German gun positions, among which the general was running back and forth, his orderly officer, Oberleutnant Most, who was right next to him, suddenly fell, mortally wounded. Just a few days earlier, Hauptmann Schreibler, his ordnance officer, had been wounded right by his side. Each time, the round could have hit him also. Rommel's command behaviour also had other advantages. While the Allied commanders were mostly miles away from where the action was happening, he was able to quickly grasp the situation and react instantly, since he was way up front. There were four measures that brought about the turning point in this battle. The first, he organised a forward containment line made up of anti-tank guns and light flak pieces. That, of course, did not stop the massively armoured Matilda battle tanks, but did stop some of the lighter tanks. Second, as can be seen from several of Rommel's radio messages to his division headquarters, he ordered a second containment line that was made up of artillery pieces and flak anti-aircraft guns to be formed deep in the rear. When the British in the open terrain between Mercatel and Tiloy ran frontally into these positions, they lost two dozen tanks in just a few minutes. The 88 flak guns played a particularly important role in beating this thrust off. This legendary weapon played a vital role in Germany's ground war from the Spanish Civil War in 1936 until Germany's final surrender in 1945. Shortly after 1800, about two hours after the request from 7th Panzer Division for air support, the first aircraft of 1st and 8th Air Corps arrived. By that time, the British attack had already been beaten off. The German attack pounced on the retreating British tanks. Two and a half hours later, the Luftwaffe had delivered 300 dive-bomber attacks against them. Fourth thing is, in the meantime, Rommel had also ordered the 25th Panzer Regiment, which had rushed far ahead to the north, to come back. It was to cut the route of retreat of the withdrawing British formations. However, south of Dusan, it bumped into a column of French tanks that were to have screened the right flank of the British. The German panzers were able to overcome the French tanks only after bitter fighting, suffering heavy losses. The next important thing was to then break through a British anti-tank gun blocking position between Duisan and Walus. But in fact, the so-called tank battle of Arras had been decided long before the German panzers, in darkness, 
arrived at the battlefield that the British tanks had already left. The fighting of 21 May inflicted by far the most painful losses in the campaign on the 7th Panzer Division. They were as heavy as those suffered during the first four days of combat, including the Meuse River crossing. There were 89 killed in action, 116 wounded, and 173 missing, although of the missing, 90 soon found their way back to their units. This one and only British attack against the Germans had failed. Sir Basil Lydell-Hart summed up what happened from the British side in these terms. This attack was the one serious counterstroke made by the entrapped armies before the end came. Small as was its scale, it gave the Germans a shock that was due to the tough skins of the tanks rather than to any deep penetration by the attack. The British here employed slow but heavily armoured infantry tanks, Matildas. They had in all 58 of the small Mark I's armed only with machine guns and 16 of the later and larger Mark II's with a two-pounder gun. Even the Mark II's maximum speed was only 15 miles per hour and they had 75 millimetres, three inches of armour and proved impervious to the ordinary 37mm German anti-tank guns, while even artillery shells often bounced off them. The French cavalry tanks, Somewars, were faster and more thinly armoured, although not as thinly as the German. The British advance, which was not in superior numbers, had been handicapped by having little infantry support, less artillery support, and no air support. It was largely these deficiencies which had brought it to a halt after a very promising start and then caused its withdrawal. The coordination of all arms, tanks, infantry, artillery and the Luftwaffe, which was seen as being just as integral to those ground elements, indeed the Luftwaffe was seen as the fourth part of the army, was what distinguished why the German attacks were so successful and the British were not. In part, this was due to the factor that had previously made the British Army so powerful. The enormous pride each regiment, infantry regiment, had in itself that made it difficult, even unnatural, for those infantry to integrate the way the Germans were able to integrate all arms. But the shock of this attack to the Germans, who had gotten used to not being attacked by their enemies, created another dampener on the German High Command's view of how well things were really going. I'll cover the consequences of the attack in the next program. It was another contributor to the Germans only winning the second prize for the Battle of France. Rommel must directly shoulder a part of the responsibility here for the High Command's perception of how powerful this attack was. First of all, Rommel was undoubtedly the victor of Arras. In a style completely atypical for Allied generals, Rommel had led his division far from up front, where all of the fighting was going on. His courage and unbelievable calmness in coping with extreme danger must be emphasised. Reacting with lightning speed, he managed to convert a disaster that threatened his formations into a victory. But there was another side to the coin. 
rooted in Rommel's extreme publicity-seeking personality. His excessive ambition led him astray. He magnified the danger to make his achievements look even better than they already were. Julius Caesar suffered from this in his account of battles, so Rommel was part of this military tradition. That caused Rommel to send exaggerated disaster dispatches to his superiors. He reported about hundreds of enemy tanks that attacked him. In the so-called Rommel album that was presented to Hitler after the campaign in the West, there is a real horror map showing multiple red arrows that were supposed to represent the attacking British tank formations at Arras. There was mention of a total of five enemy divisions. That was not accurate. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites.